Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussions of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley and this is the 465th show of ROI. Our noted guest is Dr. Calum Elfenbein, Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Grinnell College, who is going to talk to us about the fear in our hearts, what Islamophobia tells us about America. The history buffs for today's show are Brett Menard and Rick Sweet. The show's theme song was written and performed by Mark Zap Zaptel, and our producer and engineer is, as always, David Baker. First, we'd like to introduce our guest to the show, Dr. Caleb Elfenbein. Welcome to the show, Caleb. Thank you so much for having me here. It's a pleasure. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you. We call this first segment of the show Farouk Denauren, and our goal is to give our listeners a little background on today's subject. So can you start us off with some basic information on what Islamophobia is and when it first started to be a problem with the U.S. and how is it impacting our world today? In just a couple sentences. It's such a simple topic. I'm kidding, of course. <laughs> such, such a simple topic. Yes, yeah, yeah it's much. a breeze. 30 seconds sure. will do it. No. Uh, well, thank you very much for this opportunity, and uh, I'll just I'll begin by saying that um, you know Islamophobia I think has um, become a, a pretty controversial topic and a, and a controversial term itself. And what what I'm really interested in thinking about is um, is how people form um, negative perceptions of Muslims uh, in the United States, where those perceptions come from and how those perceptions play out in the lives of Muslims in the United States. And, um, you know, I, I first became really interested in this topic. It was back in 2015, and, and I just started noticing uh, a lot of media reports um, about anti-Muslim activity in the United States. And, and I, I started looking into it to see if I was noticing, in fact, a rise in anti-Muslim activity uh, or if this was just a, a coincidence. And uh, the, 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 more I, the more I looked into it, the more I just discovered a, a, really, uh, a really deep history of anti-Muslim um, sentiment in the United States. And, and it really concerned me um, as, you know, as someone who, who believes really deeply in the importance of of uh, equal access to to our public life, our shared life, and when I looked into that history, I I, I learned that uh, Muslims have been in the United States from before it was the United States um, as part of enslaved populations in the United States, and that um, that throughout the country's history um, there has been suspicion of Muslims and. That suspicion of Muslims has led to very, very active uh, law enforcement activity around Muslims, I'll say, and that goes all the way back to uh, the early parts of the, of the 20th century um, and uh, through the civil rights movement with, with black Muslim communities in the United States. And, of course, it really uh, became uh, even more of a national issue um, in the uh, in the wake of the September 11th attacks, and what I did find, though, very interestingly, as I was doing research for Fear in Our Hearts, is that after September 11th, anti-Muslim activity actually decreased significantly from a really kind of frightening spike just after the attacks, and uh, so I was really wondering what was happening when um, when 
levels of anti-Muslim activity were going up starting really in 2010 or so. Um, given that we hadn't had an attack perpetrated by Muslims um, in over a decade, why had numbers gone way down after September 11th and then started to go back up? And it really, the, the research took me on a fascinating journey um, that, that, that led me to, to think about how, uh, how social movements develop uh, over time, and, and especially um, an, an anti-Muslim social movement had developed over the, the first decade of the 21st century. And, um, and what happened um, really from 2010 to 2015 that brought us to a point where we are seeing historic levels of anti-Muslim activity in the United States. And, um, and again, you know, I, I'm really very interested in this topic in part because I, I believe so deeply that, uh, that all Americans need to have access to public life for our, our democracy to work well and work right. And that's ultimately uh, my, my really deep interest. Uh, and and I, I felt like um, looking at Islamophobia or anti-Muslim sentiment um, offered us a, a window into the state of our public life together more generally. And, and that's, that's really the spirit of the book. Um, to ask a question then, is much of this uh, Islamophobia, like many phobias, are based on much more emotion than fact or research? Uh, I, I mean, I... I in my younger years lived in Mali, Africa for six months. So I was in a country that was 98% Muslim. And, uh, and again, it was, um, a different, uh, and people think that all Islamic beliefs are the same and they're not. So, uh, in your experience is a lot of this just sheer ignorance or what is it that is driving these people to sit there and have a, fear or hatred toward these followers of a Abrahamic religion? <laughs> yeah, that's, it's a great question. And, you know, I, I want to say that, um, that the fear in part comes out of the fact that there are Muslims who do terrible things, um, just as any group in the world. There are members who do terrible things in the name of a certain belief or a certain identity. And, and so I, I don't want to pretend that, um, that bad things don't happen um, at times. Um, and so what happens is, right, this kind of kernel of information um, is taken up by people who have a broader agenda. And, um, and, I, and I think really um, push that agenda in a way that generates fear that really outstrips and doesn't relate to the actual everyday experiences that people have with a given group of people. So levels of anti-Muslim sentiment in the United States don't reflect the actual experiences that the vast, vast majority of non-Muslim Americans have with Muslims. And so it really is a question of how um, how anti-Muslim activists take what a small number of people do and begin to generalize about almost 2 billion people around the world. And it's that generalization that really makes it possible for people to experience 
a general fear of a group of people that really doesn't bear any direct relationship to the experiences that they have in their lives. Okay. We have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. The KALA website is your one-stop spot to find out more about your favorite radio station. Submit a public service announcement, catch up on news about KALA, and listening to any of our three stations, 885-1061 or The Stinger, is just a click away. Visit KALAFM.org. That's KALAFM.org. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley, and this is the second segment of our show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Dr. Caleb Elfenbein. Associate Professor of History and Religious Studies at Grinnell College, and we are talking about his book, Fear in Our Hearts, What is Islamophobia Tell Us About America? Our history buffs for today's show are Brett Menard and Rick Sweet. Brett, as one of our resident historians, why don't you start us off? Gladly. Uh, Caleb, can you talk to us a little bit, what makes Islamophobia different than fears of other religious minorities, so anti-Semitism or, or those types of fears? Yeah, I, that's a, a really wonderful question. Thank you uh, for asking. And um, th- the fact of the matter is anti-Muslim sentiment um, really, really does um, connect in important ways with anti-Semitism. And um, I'll just provide a couple of examples. Um, anti-Semitism is often expressed uh, in terms of um, kind of Jewish communities as as secret societies, as um, groups of people who have kind of ulterior motives and who hide those motives from um, from the rest of of the society in which they they live, the society of which they're a part. And in fact, it's that idea of a hidden agenda um, that is almost conspiratorial in nature. And what I found in my research for Fear in Our Hearts is that um, anti-Muslim activists have really very successfully um, drawn on that same idea that we see in anti-Semitism and, um, and took one concept um, called takia, um, which is a is a, a really kind of um, a minor theological concept in Islamic traditions, which says that if someone who is Muslim is under danger, um, is is facing a threat uh, to themselves in the moment, that they can in fact um, deny that they are Muslim to protect themselves. And what anti-Muslim activists have done is take this idea and argue that all Muslims will always hide their true motives from everybody. And so when anti-Muslim activists talk about an agenda of wanting to um, undermine the United States, 
um, to uh, to force um, Sharia or understandings of Islamic law onto non-Muslims. Um, to wage a, a stealth jihad is a, is a term that I came across a lot. It is often with the idea that Muslims can't be trusted because they are hiding their true motives. And so in that sense, there is really a lot in common with how anti-Semitism functions. Okay. Rick. Yeah, thanks, John. Caleb, I was uh, trying to wrap up about 20 different little pieces of information that triggered my brain when you were answering that. You mentioned in the opening segment uh, the anti-Muslims have a broad agenda. I believe that's the phrase you use. What is that broad agenda? What is this, What is the core of the anti-movement uh, of these people? Yeah, that's a, a really great question, Rick. Um, I, I think in, in general terms, um, the, the agenda is to, um, to defend what they understand to be the real America. And that real America is overwhelmingly white and overwhelmingly Christian. And um, I, I would say that in a lot of ways, the, um, the, the roots of the contemporary uh, anti-Muslim movement date back to the 1960s when, um, when a lot of Muslims from the Middle East uh, arrived in the United States, along with a kind of broadening of, uh, of immigration um, in the United States. And uh, moving forward then to uh, the 1990s and the early 2000s, when uh, Muslim communities in the United States grew uh, pretty substantially, um, through uh, through immigration, and so I really think there is a, a deep anti-immigrant sentiment that is connected in important ways um, to uh, to certain understandings of um, of the United States of American society as one that is predominantly for um, white people and uh, and especially uh, Christian people. Okay, um, so. Caleb, along with kind of what Rick is saying, um, I always kind of definitely perceived that much that was driving Islamophobia was also, as you were kind of direct going in the direction before, it wasn't just their religious beliefs, it was also physical features. And it was physical appearance. And like with anti-Semitism, when they would use comics or drawings that were derogatory towards um, people, uh, people of Jewish uh, ethnic backgrounds and faith, um, when they come out with these agendas of trying to bash uh, Muslims, how often do they bring uh, physical features and or in traditions into their um, motif, operandi? Yeah, there's such a, a, a deep connection between race and religion. Uh, in the United States, and um, and so that 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 question is a, is a really very important one. And I just want to point out that after September 11th, the first person who died as a result of um, of an anti-Muslim attack was actually not Muslim. Um, the the first victim of anti-Muslim violence after September 11th was a Sikh American. Yep. And 
and so I think that points to um, stereotypes about what Muslims look like, how they dress, right? So in this particular case, um, the, the victim of this, of this crime was wearing a turban, as, um, as many uh, members of Sikh communities do. And, right, it points to certain stereotypes that people have um, about um, how Muslims dress, the color of, of, uh, of their skin. And the reality is that um, Muslim communities are incredibly diverse around the world. There are Muslim communities on every continent. There are Muslim communities um, that appear white. There are Muslim communities in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, there are Muslim communities in India and Pakistan and Indonesia. And they all look different, as you would expect, in <laughs> thinking about people around the world. And so there are stereotypes. And that does lead to, um, for example, women wearing headscarves, um, being targeted in particular um, in anti-Muslim activity in the U.S. But it's important to point out that there are women in other communities who also wear headscarves. And so these stereotypes um, very rarely reflect the reality of who people are and what they look like and how they dress and the languages they speak. Um, but there are absolutely stereotypes that, that drive how people uh, identify um, other Americans who they, um, frankly, want to discriminate against. Brett. Can you talk a little bit about how much of this Islamophobia comes from genuine, if misguided, belief, and how much is people who see it as a way to win uh, political points for for other agendas and just kind of sign off because they think that uh, there's some other benefit to them? You know, I think this is where the idea of, um, of an anti-Muslim social movement becomes really very important because you have all kinds of people who participate in social movements, right? You have people who participate in kind of cynical terms, as you're suggesting, um, who kind of sign on to certain ideas because they might play well with a base. Um, so, you know, for example, you have national politicians who have never before really um, spoken in ways that would suggest uh, that they harbor anti-Muslim sentiment, all of a sudden jumping on board of a political platform um, that, um, that supports um, anti-Muslim sentiment. Um, so, right, there is that kind of cynical participation, but I also think that um, that for a good number of people, the, the fear is real. And, um, and, and you know, so I, I don't want to downplay that fear. I don't want to dismiss it. It comes from somewhere. And um, in, my, in my opening comments, I talked about how, um, how that fear given the small numbers of Muslims in the United States um, at you know, about 1% of our, of our national uh, population, um, that, that fear doesn't actually reflect everyday experiences that people have with Muslims in, in their communities. And, um, and I think that that's really important to point out, right? That the fear is real, but that 
it doesn't reflect people's actual experiences. It reflects how they hear other people talk about Muslims, how they hear um, national news outlets talk about Muslims, how they hear political leaders talk about Muslims. And I, I think that, that that gap between actual experience and, um, and kind of often cynical uh, engagement in anti-Muslim uh, discourse, I, I think that that's really tragic. Um, and, and, and I think that that is one area in which uh, Muslims across the United States have been so incredibly active over um, over the the last really uh, twenty years in the United States, um, in holding open mosque uh, events, ask a Muslim events, and doing incredible outreach to their local communities, um, so that uh, more and more people would know someone who is Muslim, and um, thereby make it a lot harder for people to generalize. Um, about Muslims. And, and I think that that work is, is so very admirable. And it is unfortunate that that work has um, fallen almost entirely on the shoulders of Muslim communities, um, given that they are such a small part of, of our country in terms of demographics. Rick. Yeah, Caleb, uh, maybe I misheard uh, uh, what you said in the opening segment. But you mentioned, I think that the actual anti-Muslim uh, activity has decreased somewhat since 9-11. Um, did, I, did I hear you wrong? And if not, why do you think that happened? So, um, it, right, there was a, a really terrifying spike of anti-Muslim activity um, right after September 11th. And then within a few months, it decreased significantly, still at levels higher than uh, prior to 9-11, but really decreased quite significantly and stayed at about that same rate until 2010, when, um, when there was a little spike. And then it kind of normalized again um, and uh, began to jump back up uh, in uh, 2015. So it was a really big question for me. Well, like, what, what happened after September 11th that, uh, that made a difference, that made those numbers go way down? And, um, and I think it's important to, to give credit where credit is due. And, um, you know, after September 11th, um, President George Bush um, really worked very hard to, uh, to emphasize the important role that Muslims have played in, uh, in local communities across the United States uh, for decades and decades, um, had really tried to differentiate between the very small group of people who attacked the United States and the almost 2 billion Muslims who did not. And uh, this was, of course, all happening at the same time that, um, that the federal government was uh, detaining and interviewing uh, Muslims pretty indiscriminately and without due process across the country. But I think the president displaying leadership in that moment was very important in setting a tone for public discourse. And while people across the political spectrum continued to, um, to talk about the need uh, and justify racial profiling um, when it came to uh, national security, um, 
President Bush really um, did did I think important work in um, in creating a, an environment in which um, we saw that that decline, the, the pretty rapid decline um, of anti-Muslim activity. So, you know, I, th- I think that that shows how important political leadership can be in sure. in uh, in very pitched moments. Okay, from a different perspective, then. Um 2015, uh, we had the rise of um, uh, Islamophobia again, and we had a candidate who became president who was very uh, quick to the draw to point fingers not just at Muslims, but for other racist and ethnic backgrounds as well. Uh, And when he had his rallies, they often were the GOAT. Uh, and I don't mean the greatest of all time, uh, <clears throat> the goat of his uh, performances. Uh, did that? Yeah. Did we see an increase then? Then from the, uh, the did you see it increase? Uh, it increased substantially in 2015. Um, I have a a website that I've developed uh, and maintained with students at Grinnell and and staff members at Grinnell called Mapping Islamophobia. And the, the website uses original data that we've collected um, to create data visualizations of uh, anti-Muslim activity over time. And if you look at those maps, it is really stunning, as you can see that difference over time. And the number of data points on maps um, grow from 2014 to 15 to 16 to 17. And there's really no question that um, that that political discourse had a very significant role in that increase. Um, I will say as well that there are um, that there are anti-Muslim activists who supported um, national political discourse, and you know I, it's important again to point out that 2015 um, saw some some really horrible and tragic um, events and violence perpetrated by Muslims um, in, in 2015 in France. And, you know, that's, those events were real and terrible and tragic. And I think it's, it's in those moments where leadership really matters. It's in those moments where the decisions that everyday people make about um, whom we're going to listen to and why becomes so important. Because in this moment in which scary things were happening, I think people took real advantage and again played on people's fears to make it okay, more and more okay, to say really terrible things about Muslims in public. And that kind of fed into a cycle of of national discourse, anti-Muslim national discourse, giving rise to more and more anti-Muslim activity. And over that period, 2015 to 2018, um, there was really higher rates of anti-Muslim activity than virtually any moment in our country's history. Okay. When we come back, we'll wrap things up, so please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. 
This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes our 465th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme, which was written and performed by Mark Zap Zaptel. My name is John Keeley, and we would like to thank our noted guest, Dr. Caleb Elfenbein, Associate Professor of History and Religious Studies, who talked to us about his book, Fear in Our Hearts, What Islamophobia Tells Us About America. The history bus for today's show are Brett Menard and Rick Sweet. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on station KALA, St. Ambrose University. The views expressed on this show are not those of St. Ambrose or KALA. We would also like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotso Pulanala, Peace, Reign, and Prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. Good night.